You've been an influence on me for much longer than you've ever known me. <laughs> but I've known you, and I'm thankful for you. So come and thank you. I'm not deserving of that introduction, but I sure did like it. <laughs> thank God for a a church that is drenched in prayer Amen. and a conference that is drenched in prayer. Amen. The failure of the church in the 20th century is largely a failure of prayer. We don't much preach about it or teach about it or write about it or do it. And it shows. Thank God this church and conference are an exception. And it's a great blessing to my own heart. Great to see all of you today. Great to see you other speakers. I don't think I'd met any except my dear friend George Grant. He and I have been privileged to be friends for, I don't know, I was thinking maybe about 25 years or so. I think we met at the old Christian Worldview Student Conference in Newport Beach back in the mid or late 90s. And George was an old man then, so we've known each other a very long time. And it's great to meet you other preachers. I hope I can meet many of you people. My dear wife Sharon is here also. Thank God for you, Ernie, and your faithfulness, your evident zeal for the kingdom of God. Uh, ideas have consequences. Richard Weaver wrote years ago, just after World War II, bad ideas have bad consequences, and the bad theological ideas have the worst consequences of all. In my uh, talk, I'm hoping to lay a foundation for a theology of culture. Uh, in my second talk, tomorrow morning, I hope to describe what that culture has looked like historically and what we need to do to restore a biblical culture of grace in our uh, troubled and troubling civilization. Christianity is a religion of grace. It's unique among all the world's great religions. Judaism and Islam are ethical religions. Hinduism is a pantheistic religion. Buddhism is a Gnostic religion. Christianity is a redemptive religion. Amen. The Christian worldview can be summarized as creation, Fall, redemption. Somebody asks you sometime, what is Christianity? Tell me in three words. Say, creation, fall, redemption. God created all things very good, but mankind in Adam fell into sin and provoked God's righteous judgment. But God in the love and kindness of his heart promised to send a redeemer, his own son, God in the flesh, to atone for that sin and rise again to defeat it. These latter redemptive events accomplished in and by Jesus Christ are at the heart of Christianity and at the heart of the Bible. Again and again, they're identified as works of God's grace. In fact, when we Christians hear the word grace, we almost instantaneously think of our salvation by grace. In the language of Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace and not of works. 
Grace pervades the Bible, and its meaning really isn't hard to understand. It's evident throughout the Old Testament, but it really comes to the summit in the New Testament. Grace in the Bible simply means a gift, an undeserved favor, a kindness. In secular Greek, the word translated grace means favor, and this meaning, of course, is also reflected in the Bible. However, the biblical connotation generally goes much deeper, particularly in the Apostle Paul's letters. Grace is the undeserved, unmerited gift of God in Jesus Christ, centering on the salvation or rescue from sin into which all humans are born. The Protestant Reformation made a critical contribution to the understanding of grace in church history. A better way of putting it would be that the Reformation recovered the Pauline conception of grace. Gradually, the medieval church, and certainly uh, the, uh, the patristic church, rather, and certainly the medieval church, had redirected grace from the person of Jesus Christ to the church itself. The Roman Catholic Church and also the Eastern Orthodox churches in particular. Now, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is God's gracious mediator of salvation in his atoning death. But medieval theologians wanted to add the church as an additional mediator between the individual and Christ. They added Mary, for that matter. This meant that we experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ by participating in the church. And this meant for them the complex sacramental system of the church. In effect, this meant that the redemptive work of Christ receded in importance. It was always there, of course, but almost always in the background of the church itself. Jesus Christ, according to them, is the mediator of salvation, but the church is the mediator of Jesus Christ. Now, the Reformers did not have a low view of the church, contrary to what many modern Protestants seem to believe. For the reformers, especially Calvin, the church is vital in God's plan. But they recovered the biblical teaching that we're saved, that we're rescued from sin, the objects of God's grace, by getting right with Jesus Christ, and not first by getting right with the church. In the words of the romantic liberal, Frederick Schleimacher, quote, Protestantism makes the individual's relation to the church dependent on his relation to Christ, while Roman Catholicism makes the individual's relation to Christ dependent on his relation to the church. In short, in the Roman Catholic view, we get to Jesus by going through the church. In the Reformation view, we get to the church by going through Jesus. In theological language, the problem with medieval theology is that it collapsed soteriology into ecclesiology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. In Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, these two are in practice the same thing. But even this biblical recovery didn't get to the heart of the problem of grace at the time of the Reformation. The medieval church had an attenuated view of the fallen human condition. Man is born into sin, to be sure, but the effect is more like a sickness, according to them, or a poison. Jesus Christ came to die as the divine physician to provide the cure. Despite man's sin, he has the natural ability to turn to God for salvation. This is a part of the dangerous scholastic distinction that was prevalent almost everywhere in the medieval church. 
the nature-grace distinction. By nature, man has fallen, but he still retains a, a basic spiritual appetite and capacity to turn to God. This is man in nature. Grace, on the other hand, is the province of the church. Sinful man must join the church so that he can get into contact with the grace that can elevate him from his inferior position of nature to a superior position of grace. The sacraments are the medicine to heal sinful man if he'll only turn to the church, the divine doctor's office. That's what the church is, in essence, the divine doctor's office. To the reformers, in radical contrast, man's problem isn't that he's poisoned or sick, but that he's dead. This is a metaphor that Paul uses. This doesn't mean man is constitutionally unable to respond to God as though he lacks a mind or a will. It means he's spiritually unable to respond to God. His spiritual desires and affections are dead. Since man is spiritually dead, he doesn't need medicine. He needs a resurrection. That's precisely what the Bible calls the new birth in John chapter 3. The Holy Spirit regenerates the dead human spirit, enlivening it so that man can believe and trust in Christ. This means that salvation is, in Charles Spurgeon's words, all of grace. Salvation is not a synthesis of God's grace and man's efforts. Salvation is God's gracious work through and through. The Reformation recovery was a godsend to the church, literally, But it would be a mistake to assume that as a result, all has been well. And here's where I get to the main point I'm going to make today. As is often the case, salutary movements in the church produce unintended consequences. And some of those unintended consequences lead us directly to the heart of today's theme. In uh, removing spurious mediators, the Reformation resituated man where he must always be immediately before the face of God. Man didn't need to join the church community to become a Christian. He needed to trust in Christ alone to become a Christian. Over time, however, this biblical conception gradually degenerated into a nearly exclusive emphasis on individual soteriology. God's work of the gospel in the world is limited to individual conversion and salvation. This necessitated, of course, the idea that God's grace is manifested almost exclusively in the individual sinner's salvation. This truncated view of grace was far from the mind of the original reformers, certainly Calvin's. Well into the 21st century, it has become the preoccupation of modern conservative Protestantism, and we are now suffering the bitter consequences of this truncated view of grace. It's truncated because it doesn't start where the Bible starts, with creation. Many Christians can't understand this, and they hold a truncated view precisely because they would never think to link grace to creation or the pre-fall world. In short, grace is limited to redemptive grace. This is a serious and potentially fatal error. Remember that grace is God's unmerited favor and kindness. But unmerited favor and kindness are precisely what creation was all about. 
God's very act of creating the world for man is an act of grace. It's a gift. God fashioned the universe for his own glory, but for man's home and supervision, or to use biblical language, dominion. Man deserved none of this spectacular blessing. Man wasn't there to deserve it in the first place. The material cosmos, the human fashioning God's image with his elevated spirit and holy imagination and our five robust senses and the water and the air and the animals and plants and all else in creation are unparalleled exhibitions of God's grace. God's grace didn't begin in Genesis 3.15 with the first gospel message, the promise of a redeemer. God's grace began in Genesis 1.1, the creation of the cosmos. Creation, therefore, is the theater not only of God's glory, but also of his grace. I sometimes hear Christians say that man didn't need grace before the fall, as if the pre-fall man could be a self-sufficient person in any aspect of his being. This is nothing more than covert humanism. Man didn't need redemptive grace before the fall, but he certainly needed creational and providential grace. Otherwise, he couldn't be there in the first place. Because many modern Christians, and many historically for that matter, don't recognize creation as an aspect of God's grace, they tend to have a truncated view of man's calling in the world. If grace is exclusively redemptive grace, then getting man into contact with individual redemption is the nearly exclusive calling of believers and Christianity in the world. Christians are commissioned to bring God's grace to culture, but we can do that correctly only if we grasp the centrality of the theater of his grace, and that is creation. The theologian John M. Frame uh, expresses a crucial distinction. Creation is what God makes. Culture is what we make. To understand our cultural task, we need to know some things about creation. To live as faithful Christians, we must live within the divine structures and strictures that presuppose Christianity. Many Christians might find this notion perplexing because they can't imagine a structure more fundamental than the Christian faith. But in fact, there is, and without the structure, there can be no Christianity. The structure is creation with which the Bible begins and ends. None of this is to marginalize or demean our Lord and his redemptive work. All to the contrary. We won't understand his person and work in their greater depths if we bypass creation. I'd like to issue a bold controversial claim. If we get creation wrong, we can't get the gospel right. That's right. In fact, many Christians trying to restore gospel-centered churches might be well advised to start restoring creation-centered churches so that they can properly recenter the gospel. Most of them are children or grandchildren of the fundamentalist modernist controversy that began in full force about 100 years ago in this country, as I am. They can't conceive of a danger greater to biblical Christianity than theological liberalism, which no doubt is exceedingly dangerous. But the fact is, today a danger even greater than liberalism threatens both the church and culture. Contra-creational autonomy, or self-law. 
It's attacking something even more fundamental than the cross and the resurrection. It's attacking the creational cosmology within which alone the cross and resurrection make any sense. Now, what do I mean by cosmology? I mean the study of the origin and nature of the universe. The origin and structure and laws and future of the universe is just that, cosmology. Cosmology manifests creational norms, how God intends for the universe to operate. They're the universe's OS. What's OS mean? Operating system. These include everything from physical laws like gravity and electromagnetics to moral laws like those governing language, sex, and wealth. Today, our Western world is engulfed in both secularism and paganism. Secularism dominates the sciences and paganism dominates the humanities. Secularism has become the substitute for the moral and intellectual side of Christianity, and paganism has become a substitute for the cultic or worship side. That shift has manifested in the West in the last two generations at least. It's required nothing less than the abandonment of the Christian cosmology, the creational reality. The Enlightenment moved away from Christianity, but it retained the basics of the universal design inherent in the Christian cosmology. Romanticism took even further steps away from the faith, and it laid the groundwork for the peculiar postmodern apostasy today. You want to know where it is? Walk outside those doors. It's in the world. Our postmodern world is a world that wants to reconfigure the Christian cosmology. We find the Christian cosmology disclosed in Genesis 1 and 2. These chapters are the context for the rest of the Bible. But because most of the Bible is about redemption, we miss that point. Now, we must be very careful not to absorb creation into salvation history. Creation is not secondary to salvation. Salvation is possible because of creation. Too often we look at Genesis 1 through 2 as the preamble for the Bible. I've read theologians that have said that. Genesis 1 and 2 are sort of the preamble for the Bible, setting the stage for the truly central message. But odd as it might sound, I'd like to suggest that while the cross might be the central message, Genesis 1 and 2 is the context for that message without which it's meaningless and to which the world eventually is designed to return, though in a greatly enhanced form. It tells us how the cosmos got here, how it's structured, and what God intends for it. Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22.21 tell us how God is working to restore and expand his plan that sin spoiled. Genesis 1 through 2 isn't the preamble. Genesis 1 through 2 relates the cosmology. Without Genesis 1 through 2, nothing else makes sense. This means that you can't understand what God intends and what he's doing in the world if you gloss over Genesis 1 through 2. By the way, this includes the gospel. Listen to Paul preach the cosmology of the gospel. Colossians 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. 
authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, did you notice that in preaching salvation by the blood of Jesus, Paul equally preached that Jesus is God's agent of creation, cosmology, and that all things in creation hold together in Jesus Christ, not just soteriological, things, but all things. Jesus Christ's ministry isn't just soteric. Jesus Christ's ministry is also creational and providential. It encompasses the entire cosmos, which he sustains moment by moment. If Jesus didn't hold it all together, it would all fall apart. This very moment, gravity would fail. Planets would collide. The sun would scorch us or abandon us. The cosmos would disintegrate and we would die if Jesus weren't holding on moment to moment. Jesus isn't simply a great teacher or even savior. He is the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. He's at the heart of the cosmology. This is why we call it Christian cosmology. It's also why John Frame is correct to assert that the whole Bible is the gospel. The Bible presents God's way of doing things. And he's designed for man's blessing, which he designed for man's blessing and joy, among other things. And that's good news. That's good news. Now, because of this, the gospel presupposes a worldview. The fact this idea sounds unsettling to us shows how far we've come from the Bible's teaching. A worldview is a way of viewing the world. It's a set of assumptions that everybody has by which we interpret what goes on around us and inside us. There's a Christian worldview and a Buddhist worldview and a Hindu worldview and a secular worldview and a New Age worldview and a Marxist worldview and variations and combinations of each. Whatever we experience in this world, you and I interpret through a grid of our instinctive assumptions. These assumptions comprise our worldview. Worldviews are like pancreases. Everybody has one, even if we don't know it or think about it. Now, the gospel assumes that we grasp certain truths, that we adopt a basic worldview. Of course, the Holy Spirit has to open up our eyes and heart to know it. But we don't preach Christ, uh, preach the gospel in an intellectual vacuum. The minute we say Jesus saves, we must ask, who is Jesus? And saves us from what? And then we must face the fact that the gospel presupposes a worldview. That's easy to prove. Suppose you're um, evangelizing, conversing with an unbelieving friend, colleague, whose spiritual condition you're just desperately concerned about. A lost soul headed for hell. This is the first time you've ever really gotten into spiritual matters. You don't specifically know where he stands or she stands. So you start with, I'm really concerned with your eternal soul and your eternal destiny. How do you stand with God? And let's suppose that your colleague mutters, well, I don't know much about God, but uh, sure, I guess I'd like to be right with God. Why not? And you respond, well, do you know that you, like all of us, were born into sin? 
and sin separates us from God, and that we stand under God's judgment. And your colleague, good postmodern that he is, replies, well, I like God, but I don't like that idea of God. I mean, maybe God's a woman. In any case, God's not judgmental. He accepts everybody as they are. Sure, we've all failed. We've all done a few bad things. But the only sins God cares about, she cares about, are racism, homophobia, multinational corporations, white supremacy, toxic masculinity, and judgmentalism. I believe in God, but I don't believe I'm much of a sinner. At any rate, I don't think he'd judge me just because I'm not perfect. Now, you wouldn't say in response, would you? Oh, that's okay. (laughs) You can still trust Jesus. He'll take you just as you are. You don't need to admit you're a sinner. You don't need to acknowledge that you deserve God's judgment. You don't need to repent. Just trust Jesus. No. You'd say, at least I hope you'd say, you're a sinner. You can't become a Christian until you admit you've sinned by breaking God's law. You must see you're accountable to God, that you deserve his judgment. After all, that's the reason Jesus had to die. If people aren't sinners, there was no reason for the cross. Now, if you'd respond to your colleague that way, you're admitting that the gospel presupposes a worldview. You're saying that certain beliefs are incompatible with the context of the gospel. This is why David Wells is correct to observe that the gospel makes sense only in a moral world. The gospel doesn't harmonize with a conceptual universe in which man is his own God, in which truth is relative, in which guilt is merely subjective, in which there is no final judgment, in which all religions lead to the same place, and in which Jesus is one great religious figure among many. The gospel is simply incompatible with these ideas, this worldview. This is another way of saying that the gospel demands that sinners give up certain false ideas before they can be saved. So when we preach the gospel to sinners, we're preaching a gospel that demands they repent of their rebellious thinking, not just their rebellious emotions, or their rebellious morals, or their rebellious will, or their rebellious instincts. The gospel presupposes a worldview. That's why the Bible starts with Genesis 1-1 and not John 3-16. The gospel requires a worldview for it to make sense. Creation carries a divinely established operating system. And if we bypass the creational OS, we can never get the gospel or the culture right. What's the relationship between gospel and culture. Man was created fundamentally to exercise dominion over the rest of God's creation. The Bible's plain about this in Genesis 1, 28 to 30, and this is often called the cultural mandate. Adam and Eve weren't created merely to fellowship with God. In fact, the Bible actually says nothing about that, though it's obviously implied. They were created to exert godly dominion over the rest of creation, to serve as God's stewards over the earth. They were to be God's vicegerents, 
Packer, J.I. Packer used that language. They were his royal representatives, mediating God's will to the rest of creation. We read in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them, male and female, have dominion. Dominion, godly stewardship over creation, is man and woman's chief earthly calling. Man's basic calling is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, in the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But his chief calling as regards the earth is to subdue it for God's glory. Man interacts with God's creation to lovingly impose God's will on it. Man isn't called to leave creation as it is. Environmentalists are quite wrong about that, by the way. Man interacts with creation, adding his God-given creativity and ingenuity to improve it. This, too, is an act of God's grace. God is gracious not only to man, but God is gracious to all of his creation. This means that although creation as it came from God's hand was very good, it wasn't everything that God intended it to be. In short, creation isn't sufficient. God wants culture, too. Just as man was to grow and mature in devotion and obedience to God, so creation itself was to grow and mature under man's guidance. God didn't create fruit trees simply for man to admire the fruit. The fruit from all but one tree was to be eaten. Horses weren't simply to be contemplated. They were to be used for human transport. Water isn't simply to be marveled over. It's to be used for consumption and cleaning and bathing. That is, the creation, including man himself, wasn't to be static but dynamic. We detect that dynamism even in our English language. Man cultivates, cultivates the creation. Culture originally signified tilling and cultivating the soil. It came to denote human improvement of God's earth. By the way, it's an inherently religious term. Think only of cult and cultus. Culture is a religious act. I've been speaking of culture, but it would be helpful to define it just a little more precisely. Culture, strictly defined, denotes those products of human interactivity with nature that reflect the self-conscious goal of human benefit, including education, science, entertainment, technology, architecture, the, arch, uh, the arts, even such uh, simple human products as meals and toys and personal grooming products. The category of culture introduces a sharp divide from nature. We know that God created nature. It's his handiwork. But God doesn't create culture, not directly anyway. Recall this. Creation is what God makes. Culture is what we make. Culture is what we get when man intentionally employs creation for beneficial purposes. A tomato is not an aspect of culture, but a pizza is. I think about stopping right there and having. Oxygen is not an example of culture, but an oxygen mask is. King David is not defined as culture. Michelangelo's famous sculpture, King David, about 1504, is culture. Creation plus man's beneficial interaction with it equals culture. 
Now, as we walk in this world, we constantly encounter, and almost always simultaneously, both nature and culture. We confront pecan trees, particularly down south, and cumulus clouds, and out west the Rocky Mountains, and dense fog, and fox terriers, and corn stalks, and Alabama beaches, and most significant of all, other human beings created in God's image. Amid this nature, we experience and create culture. We create superhighways and smartphones and dog training schools and political elections and pecan pies and Michelangelo's David and jackhammers and shotguns and hearing aids and on and on. Man acts on God's creation and produces culture. Now, the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 requires man and woman to cultivate the creation for God's glory. Whether tilling soil, or we're writing computer code, or making automobiles, or investing in mutual funds, or teaching children, or painting portraits, or selling life insurance, humans are required to cultivate creation for God's glory. That's why we're here, fundamentally. Henry Van Meter said this. Listen to these beautiful words. Culture is the execution of this divinely imposed mandate. In his cultural task, Man is to take the raw materials of this universe and subdue them, make them serve his purpose, and bring them to nobler and higher levels, thus bringing out the possibilities that are hidden in nature. When thus developed, man is to lay his entire cultural product, the whole of creation, at the feet of him who is king of man and of nature, in whose image man and all things are created. Isn't that beautiful? The cultural mandate, therefore, is an inescapably religious act. It was established by God and must operate under his authority. The idea that culture could ever be validly non-religious is a contradiction of terms. There can be no cultural neutrality. Every culture operates in terms of its cultivators' underlying religious assumptions. Joe Boot writes this, the culture shapers are tilling the minds of others with a specific worldview in mind. Culture is religion externalized. The issue always is, whose religion? The very notion that there could be cultural neutrality arises because of sin. So we must immediately ask, how does sin affect the cultural mandate? When Adam and Eve sinned, they established themselves as independent rival authorities to God. They said implicitly, my will be done on earth. But they didn't lose their impulse to create culture. In fact, their first act after sinning was a cultural act to create fig leaves to hide the shame of their nakedness. They had to pluck leaves to do this. They had to find a vine or some other natural twine to sew the figs into aprons. They had to arrange the leaves so it could fit their bodies. These are cultural acts if there ever were any. These cultural acts were undertaken to cover their sin, literally. For the same reason, we shouldn't be surprised that culture was at the root of the first murder in human history in Genesis 4. Cain cultivated, cultivated, notice, the soil, while Abel tended the sheep, both cultural acts. When God accepted Abel's offering of sheep and not Cain's offering of plants, God rejected Cain's sacrifice. 
And in envy, of course, Cain murdered his brother. Over what? Over the products of culture. Does this mean that God abandoned the cultural mandate after the fall? By no means. In Genesis 9, 1 through 4, after the universal flood, God restated to Noah the mandate he first gave in Eden. Sin, however, did introduce two modifications. First, because of sin, man would suffer from the hardships posed by a creation under the curse. You all know that here, right? Man's work would be tiresome. Woman's childbearing would be painful. The cultural mandate would be hard work. Therefore, and second, for the cultural mandate to be what God intended, man would have to be redeemed and cleansed from sin. The first implicit act of atonement in the Bible was when God made skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. He had to shed an animal's blood to do this. Fig leaves would not suffice to cover their shame. Only the product of blood shedding could do that. This act, this cultural act by God, pointed to the one final and enduring sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whose blood shedding on the cross alone can take away the guilt and the pollution of sin. When sinful man is redeemed, he's restored to his original place as God's vicegerent over creation. I would submit to you that fundamentally, that's what the gospel is all about in this world. This is why God reissued his commission to Noah and his descendants. God didn't abandon his cultural plan for the earth. He reissued it to newly redeemed people. Scott Haefman writes this, Because of the atoning consequences of the cross, God is finally fulfilling his mission of revealing his glory through recreating a people who will exercise dominion in his name by keeping his commandments. This is our calling as God's people, washed in the Lord's blood. We're his dominion people, our Lord's new humanity. Now these episodes lead to a striking insight. Sin doesn't eliminate the cultural mandate, it only perverts it. This new sinful humanity introduced a new cultural situation. The earth is now populated by two kinds of humans, both made in God's image, both committed to the cultural mandate. Creator worshipers versus creature worshipers in the language of Romans 1. We still live on one earth, but two kinds of people exert cultural influence in the earth. This changed situation is the conflict that we encounter everywhere we look. The godly and the ungodly, both bearing the dominion impulse, inherently bearing it, relentlessly cultivating the earth. Creator worshipers for God's glory, creation worshipers for man's glory. This conflict is played out on the great theater of creation in every dimension. In creation, I'm sorry, in education, Christian schools and home schools versus secular and humanistic state schools. In art, the God-honoring painting, let's say, of Michelangelo versus the God-defying painting of Picasso. In music, the virtuous music of Bach versus the rebellious music of Lady Gaga. In vocation, the covenantal model of employer-employee relation versus the management union model of Marxism. In sports, the God-glorifying play of Eric Little versus the man-glorifying play of Muhammad Ali. 
In politics, decentralized liberty under law versus centralized messianic statism. In child rearing, biblical wisdom from Proverbs versus humanistic wisdom of secular child psychologists. In economics, virtuous free markets versus vicious messianic interventionism. Even in the church, biblical spirit-filled faith versus accommodationist existential religion. And in every other sphere across the entire spectrum of life. The great human conflicts are always the conflicts between creator worshipers and creature worshipers over how they will exercise dominion, how they will create culture in the earth. These two forms of culture, of course, look radically different when allowed to pursue their own inner principles. This is why the music of Wagner is dramatically different from that of Bach. Why the paintings of Picasso are instantly distinguishable from those of Michelangelo. Why the campus of the University of Alabama would never be confused with that of Spurgeon College. Why the economic transactions, whatever them there were, in 50s Moscow were so dramatically different from those in New York City and on and on. When given the chance, creation worshipers create a culture vastly different from creator worshipers. I have just described to you why the world is the way it is out there and what you encounter every day. Now the good news is that God rarely grants creation worshipers free reign. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't allow sinful, depraved people to be as bad as they could possibly be. This, in fact, is how we explain impressive and seemingly God-honoring expressions of culture created by ungodly people. How could Leonardo da Vinci paint the Last Supper while possibly being a sodomite? How could Steve Jobs create such beneficial technological devices while being a self-obsessed Buddhist? How could Michael Jordan execute such amazing basketball feats while being a high-stakes gambler and refusing to give God the glory? The answer is that God doesn't grant his cultural gifts only to his redeemed people. He sends the rain and the warmth of the sun on both the righteous and the unrighteous. God is kind even to those who spurn his goodness. Unbelievers were created in God's image, and they don't lose this image when they sin. It may be effaced, this image may be effaced, but it's not erased. And this divine image often blazes in their cultural products in spite of their own sin. Now, we term this God's common grace. God's common grace. This is another exhibition of God's non-redemptive grace that we saw earlier. But this non-redemptive grace is after the fall. God showered his non-redemptive grace before the fall in creation, and he unleashes his redemptive grace after the fall in the cross and in the resurrection. But he bestows his non-redemptive grace after the fall as common grace. Of course it's to be distinguished from redemptive grace. This latter redemptive grace is shown only to those who trust in his son Jesus Christ for salvation. But God showers his common grace, his providential grace, on all humanity. 
God is very interested in creation, and he doesn't leave its cultivation only to Christians. The cultural mandate was given to humanity as a whole, not merely a subset of it. God doesn't withdraw his cultural mandate from unbelievers. He simply demands they fulfill it for his glory. And they must trust in Christ, of course, to do that. We dare not despise God's good gifts, even when they come from very bad people. And we can and should glorify God for cultural products, even when they come to us from the hand of ungodly people. Several years ago, my wife and I uh, visited the Art Institute of Chicago, and uh, we just marveled while uh, at the visiting Impressionist exhibit over from the Louvre in uh, Paris. Monet and Manet and Van Gogh weren't Impressionists, prominent Impressionists, weren't Christians, but we could glorify God at the staggering talent that he granted them. These painters were God-glorifying culturalists despite their lack of belief in him. God's sovereignty is greater than man's sin. Isn't that wonderful? God's sovereignty is greater than man's sin, including the cultural expressions of his sin. Whereas God allowed Picasso nearly free reign in his artistic depravity, pornography, for example, God kept Manet and Van Gogh's depravity mightily in check. We can and should intentionally glorify God for his gracious sovereignty in restraining their sin and glorifying himself in spite of them. They can create glorious cultural products only by borrowing unacknowledged capital from God. Common grace also provides the biblical foundation for collaboration between godly and ungodly in specific aspects of life. The Bible requires spiritual separation from sin and from the ungodly in specific cases, but it doesn't require separation from them in many cultural acts. It's not wrong to hire a secular architect to design your house, or to walk the political precinct with a Hindu housewife, or to enlist a New Age teenager to deliver your pepperoni pizza. Oh, there's pizza again. It's a thread running through this entire talk. God's common grace is his mechanism for preserving continuity in cultural history. If we had to depend only on Christians to pilot all airplanes, to plant and harvest all blueberries, to deliver all groceries to market, to write all software, the world would be greatly impoverished. Culture can operate with relative ease and productivity because God is gracious both to believers and unbelievers. Now, this common grace doesn't mitigate the antithesis I talked about earlier. For as many non-Christian airline pilots who deliver thousands of passengers safely every day, there are, say, non-Christian musicians who produce and perform songs that pervert sexuality and attack Christian morals and seduce not just the world but Christians, too, from the faith. We're surrounded both by the beneficial products of God's common grace and the poisonous products of human sin. Our task as God's people, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the preaching of the comprehensive gospel, is gradually to get rid of this poison. Ours is a work of cultural healing on the basis of Christ's great redemptive work. 
I'll conclude this uh, first talk with a question. And how you and I answer this question will reshape our entire lives, our entire outlook, specific actions, practical decisions that each of us makes every single day. Here's that question. What is God doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? In conservative Christianity, uh, particularly over the last 150 years or so, there have been two main ways of answering that question. Here's answer number one. God is redeeming sinners by the atoning blood and bodily resurrection of his son. They're converted. They join the church. They live godly lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. They maintain faithful Christian families. They point others to the Lord Jesus. And they long for the day when eternally in heaven, far away from the earth, they will love and worship the triune God. That's the answer to question number one. Very prominent. Now, we might call this the Genesis 3 vision, the Genesis 3 315 in particular vision, since it sees the heart of God's work in the world, redeeming sinful man and bringing him back into glorious fellowship with his maker and fitting him for heaven. But there's another way of answering the question. What is God doing in the world? It's the minority report, but I hope it's an answer you'll at least seriously consider. Here's answer number two. God, in the redemptive work of his Son, is restoring man and the rest of creation to its original unspoiled glory, and even greater glory as man creatively interacts with it in fulfilling the cultural mandate. The goal is an imperfect but substantively restored and enhanced godly civilization before the perfected, consummate, or eternal state. In eternity, man won't live in an ethereal or otherworldly nirvana, but on a resurrected and redeemed earth, the new heavens and the new earth, to which God himself and the new Jerusalem descend, and where God and man will live together eternally as man cultivates that perfected creation for his glory. That is Genesis 1, 2, Christianity. Today, I'm inviting you to become Genesis 1, 2 Christians and not Genesis 3 Christians. Thank you, Father, for the truths of your word. May they bear heavenly on our minds and hearts. Thank you for your spirit that you've given to illuminate our minds and hearts. Lord, bless the other speakers and do them greatly with your power. May they speak the truth. Bless these dear saints that have come and all of those that are viewing digitally. Use my weak and broken and sinful words to communicate your very strong and powerful and infallible word. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior and Lord and King. In his name alone we pray.